But before we begin, I just want to let you know that we're going to be talking about the tragic events that happened this weekend in Orlando. Uh, so there might be some material that isn't appropriate for little ears. So you might want to skip it or listen to it alone. So thanks. Muslims, Christians, and, and the, the zombie. zombie apocalypse. Muslims, Christians, and the zombie apocalypse. And the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> this is one of those episodes that Trevor and I, we cringe when we think about making. Yeah, actually Howard said, are we going to talk about what happened in Orlando this weekend? And my response was something like, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. Right. And it's because this topic is so politicized already. This is one of the first times that I can recall where Islam, homosexuality, gun control, elections, immigration... It's like, I don't even know what you would call that, but it's a convergence of such politicized, polarized ideas that it's so difficult to discuss without somebody being angry at you. So I told Howard, I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole, and he wouldn't let me get away with that. So, you know, our listeners have been Facebook messaging me and telling me, hey, they want to know uh, what what Islam teaches on homosexuality. And so I, I messaged that back to Trevor, and Trevor's like, well, you know, it's it's very similar to the Bible. And I said, yeah, but... They don't know that. And I don't know that because I don't really know what Islam teaches about it. So I, wa- I want to know and I want to have a discussion about it because I know this is complicated. We're going to try to wade through it, but I still think it's important. And so for all of you listeners that are that have really extreme viewpoints uh, or not extreme, I guess, maybe strong viewpoints, uh, I just ask you to listen with an open mind. Yeah, nobody thinks they have extreme viewpoints. Right, right that's true. Until everybody's they, balanced until they meet somebody that's unbalanced r- and then makes them mad and they realize they have extreme viewpoints. <laughs> so immediately when Howard wrote and said, "So what does Islam teach on this?" Um I I immediately in my mind think, "Well, what do you mean by that question? What does Islam teach on this?" Like, do you mean what does the Quran say about this or what do Muslims believe about this? What do uh, different Muslim theologians teach concerning this? I mean, it's a really difficult question. You can't just answer it, well, Islam teaches this. So my response to Howard was, well, the Bible is pretty close to the Quran when it comes to this topic. In fact, the Bible is actually more clear. Right. And uh, um, when when Trevor was saying all that, uh, we, <laughs> I just started to think about all the complexity when it comes to the church. You know, when it comes to like how the church responds to homosexuality. Um, so in the midst of all of these things that Trevor was talking about with the, the, the gun control argument and the mass shooting problem, uh, and then of course the tragedy of all these lives lost, I'm just thinking, man, this is going to be a really, really hard topic to discuss well. Um, but this is it. This is our shot at it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. Let's try our best. Uh, but Trevor, uh, you had this great idea. We wanted to bring in somebody else. So that we don't have to carry all the weight by ourselves. That's what I do. <laughs> if, I, if I'm confused about something, I call somebody with less hair than me <laughs> or more hair than me that it is at least of white color. Correct. Meaning they have great wisdom. Right. And so we happen to have Matthew Stone on campus Yay. teaching a course at the university. And so I thought, 
I'll just rudely interrupt the class, yeah. ask him to skip his lunch. I yep. had another student. I said, here, take my card, go get him lunch, and you come with me and have this conversation. Because Matthew Stone, he's got a Ph.D. in philosophy, a Ph.D. in psychology. He was born and raised uh, as a Jew, converted to Islam, and is now a Christian and works in great detail with counseling and has dealt with pretty much all of these issues that are converging and I thought we'll at least get his opinion and he was reluctant as well <laughs> because he knows what it is he knows how, how much of a hotbed this is going to be but woo. But here's our attempt Well, I think we first have to start with addressing some of the claims that are being made by Christians, because there are some Christians out there that are saying, you know, what this guy did was very Islamic, and it was his Muslim faith that drove him to do this, and in some ways they're making claims about, again, the true nature of Islam and its views on homosexuality, and Oftentimes we do that with a very rose-colored set of lenses on our own faith. Mm, yep. And so I, I told Howard, maybe we should start by just looking at, okay, let's look at sort of a global map of how homosexuality is viewed throughout the world. And let's just kind of give a, a little bit, as much as we can, objectivity to homosexuality on a global scale. Right. So we looked up um, uh, research done by the Pew Research Center. And um, this is uh, 2013, so it's about three years ago, but it does talk about what nations think. So here's some of the things that we found. Africa, the, the continent of Africa, uh, homosexuality is condemned throughout. With, with the exception of maybe South Africa, there's some positive views of homosexuality coming out of South Africa. But by and large, uh, the Horn of Africa, Central Africa, it's uh, pretty much condemned. And there are... Uh, laws against homosexuality in a lot of these African countries, both uh, Muslim and Christian. And when I say Muslim and Christian, I'm not saying like this is a Muslim country, this is a Christian country. I'm just referring to majority populace. So for instance, uh, Nigeria is a pretty even split when it comes to Muslims and Christians, but they do have laws on the books condemning homosexuality. Uh, but Kenya, on the other hand, is primarily a majority Christian country, and they have laws on the books. Uh, Sudan has laws on the books, Somalia, Uganda, primarily Christian uh, populace, but they have laws on the books condemning homosexuality. So Africa as a whole, it sounds so overgeneralized, but as a whole is pretty has pretty negative views on homosexuality. We also looked at the Middle East, and the Middle East, again, condemned throughout. Uh, whereas you don't just find Muslim countries in the Middle East, you also find uh, Israel. Israel's a great example. Um and then when we started to look into Asia, because we started getting interested in other groups, not just Muslim or Christian, uh, we wanted to look at Russia and China, communist nations. Uh, and China is 79% against, and Russia is 84% against. Right, and Russia has some pretty uh, harsh laws on against homosexuality. Um, it's really, you know... Some parts of Eastern Europe, Western Europe, the United States, South America, and Australia that have more favorable views 
of homosexuality, gay marriage, things like that. And so it starts to beg the question, uh, what do you attribute these things to? Is it, is it culture? Uh, is it religious views? I think we get into a dangerous conversation when we want to attribute everything to a religious view of the populace of that particular country because we are living in the United States. It's approximately 71% professing Christian country. Um, so would you say America is a Christian country? Personally, I would not say it's a Christian country, but the majority do profess Christianity. And so the majority also say that they're okay with homosexuality. And so then you start to draw what I would say is bad logical inferences on what is promoting ideas and how ideas go about. It's more than just a religious conversation. And then we thought of, after uh, looking at seeing what nations thought about homosexuality, we also wanted to look at, from the laws, how many of them have actually um, punished or executed homosexuals. And what we found was that there's only actually two countries uh, that have executed homosexuals, um, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Right. There are other countries that uh, would call for the execution but have never actually followed through with it. And that's where it really gets complicated. Because even if a country is an Islamic country, like for instance you have the Islamic Republic of, you know, fill in the blank, like a Pakistan or Pakistan would be an Islamic country. Right. Um, and they have laws against homosexuality. It doesn't necessarily mean that those laws will be carried out because just like in the United States, we might have a law against something but when somebody breaks that law, they are tried, uh, they are found guilty or not guilty, and then the punishment for whatever they have done is, is wide-ranging. And so you might have somebody in one state get the death penalty for something, and in another state get, you know, 60 years because they don't have the death penalty in that state. So there's a variety of laws in the way they're interpreted in this country. Well, the same thing happens in the Muslim world, and it gets even more complicated because of how you determine what Islamic law is, and we have Matthew Stone for that. There are multiple expressions of Islam, and each of them takes kind of a different, uh, a different position on this, and uh, Islamic law is really complicated about what informs it uh, and the process of, of coming to a decision. So it's not as straightforward as there is one position in one Islam that is applied to everybody who happens to be homosexual. And in fact, each of the madhabs or schools of thought uh, approach this differently. And then madhabs show up in different regions of the world, right? So we would expect different regions of the world where there are large or significant Muslim populations to have different approaches there because the process of coming to Islamic law will be slightly different from madhab to madhab. If we look at what generally goes into um, a judge who's in a particular madhab, a different school of a particular school of thought, like the Sunnis have four major ones. Shia have a lot, but in Iran, major one would be Ithna Ashari or the Twelvers. Um, typically, we they would look at what first, what does the Quran have to say about this, and then secondly, what the Hadith or the sayings of Muhammad have to say about it. Each of the madhab appeals to different Hadith, so. Um, uh, so there's going to be some difference already, even in what's considered to be authoritative sources within Islam. Then there's a process called al-qiyah. So let's argue by analogy of, you know, maybe a similar offense. And then there's another one, ijtihad, the um, personal in interpretation of those texts. So the interpretation can be different from person to person or from scholar to scholar. And if that wasn't subjective enough, 
it also comes down to what's the local custom, right? So even there, great freedom can be given to the individual judges within those schools of thought. So there's great diversity about what the uh, final judgment would be in a particular act of homosexuality, right? As Muslims begin to move around the world and become global, you know, citizens, that those madhabs which apply to geographical areas are breaking down, right? For example, when you come to Europe or the United States, you're going to find individuals from different ba ethnic backgrounds and geographical backgrounds coming from different madhabs. So the push has been, can we do away with the madhabs, right, and come to kind of an essence and a new way to approach um, um, making these legal pronouncements? There's a downside to that, and there's an upside to that. An upside is greater flexibility. A downside is there are no scholars who are already declared as, and agreed upon as proficient in this non-Madhab way of reasoning. And so that's what we see with Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, pretty much ignorant people uh, who don't have a background in Islamic reasoning, which is far more settled and greatly diverse and has changed over time. It's very dynamic. Wow, the first thing I'm thinking of is, what a weird word, madhab. 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 Just think school of thought. Think uh, this is a certain way of thinking. What these are is the, are, these are Islamic uh, legal, judicial rulings that have come down through these guys in these regional areas. Shafi, Hanbal, Maliki, Hanafi. He said there's four, and they're, they're primarily regional. And they have very differing views about certain acts and how to punish those acts. Now, of the four, homosexuality is, is pretty widely condemned. Now, how they go about uh, implementing the punishments for these things is varied throughout the world. Uh, so what? give us an extreme case and give us a light case. Uh, an extreme case would be like the Taliban. Uh -huh. uh, three men convicted of homosexuality. They were they had essentially a brick wall pushed onto them, and they were crushed to death by the brick wall. That would be an extreme case. That would wow. be the equivalent of a stoning, I guess. And the reason that they used that particular uh, method method was there was a, a scholar uh, out of Pakistan, modern day Pakistan. Um, that had said that that was an appropriate use of force and, and punishment for that, a guy named uh, Maududi. And he's an extreme uh, extremist scholar, in my opinion, ultra-conservative, kind of like this is the only way to handle this uh, act. Hmm. Now, an another version would be um, lashes. Um, so they would like a, like a whipping, right? That's how they would treat uh, adultery in some countries. Uh, one of the Muslim countries that I've used to live in, it was a caning. Um, instead of a lashing, caning. And so they, they, they would treat them uh, with that. That wouldn't be punishable by death, but by, by lashing. But, you know, the thing is, is no matter how you look at it, even if it's not punishable by death or by caning, I think what Howard and I really want to stress is that it seems like there is sort of a global... Uh, variety? Variety of ways in which to hate and discriminate against homosexuals. Right. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so it's not, like, it's not it's in the can. It's not, this, is, this is what everybody does. One thing that I think we want to clarify is that we're not like suggesting that, okay, the, the, the canings or the, the whippings are okay and the death is that's too far. Like, it does seem a bit bizarre to even discuss like levels of punishment for people that are homosexual because it's, it's a very medieval sort of archaic thing to be uh, 
persecuting or uh, arresting or anything for somebody in in their sexual orientation. This is just not something we're used to in the West. But you know what? Even in the West, though, we don't have to look too far back into our history um, or even in modern day to find instances where homosexuals are mistreated because of their sexual orientation. So we we don't want to come across as like a, you know, let's look at the Middle East or look at Africa and how archaic and medieval we are as though the United States has just come so far and we're there because I think the homosexual community would feel like there's still a lot of work left to be done. Right. Trevor and I were talking about like, you know, Twitter because you always get these feeds that tell you like the worst Twitters. And uh, Trevor and I were talking about how with racism, you're not going to see uh, like racial slurs coming across Twitter so much. Right. But if uh, somebody spoke out against the LGBT community, we wouldn't be surprised. Uh, and then we were just talking about how maybe in 10 years um, it would be just as shocking as it, as it would be if we saw racial slurs. Yeah, I think that for me, one of the interesting things about this story is it is the convergence of what seems to be the two sanctioned groups of people to hate right now in the 21st century, Muslims and homosexuals. And that's the the irony of this, is that there's sort of a licensed or a sanctioned uh, a hatred towards these groups. And you'd think that we were beyond some of this stuff, but this is just a reminder that the human heart is incredibly wicked um, in desperate need of healing. And something that's far interesting for the, the Orlando shooter um, is the backstory that uh, that says that he might actually have frequented uh, Pulse, the nightclub that uh, he had shot up, um, not just as someone that was scoping it out, but uh, as a as part of the homosexual community. Right. There's been a few reports coming out, and you know, it, there's no way to know he's no longer alive to either say whether he was or wasn't, but it certainly makes uh, a little bit of sense when you look at it from a psychological standpoint, which is, of course, where we have to bring Matthew back in to discuss this, because this is really his field, and we wondered if these two competing narratives, right? I mean, think about it, Howard. These are radically opposed narratives, neither one that will get you uh, a whole lot of sleep at night. You have the one narrative that says, Uh, Islam to be a good Muslim is to be radical and so he's struggling with this idea of who am I as a Muslim should I be radical should I be moderate is there a place for moderate Islam and then if he is struggling in the area or practicing in homosexuality he's struggling with this competing narrative within his own faith that it says the, the Muslim world by and large condemns this Um, and the society in which he's living in, he's finding himself with a foot in two worlds, neither of which have a whole lot of room for him to be accepted. And here's Matthew Stone. They may seem competing narratives, but they make utter sense psychologically because if we demonize people that engage in particular behaviors, that um, and that's internalized by the person, and they come to a realization that they have same-sex attraction, right? and feel driven to, you know, practice that and go to, um, as we see in the data about that unfortunate young man, go to, um, you know, gay bars, etc. The internal, uh, you know, the internal dialogue that he would have and the self-condemnation may become intolerable. And so it's very easy shift to objectify externally that internal, that internal, um, internal rage. And I think it's a wake-up call that that is the price that the culture pays when we demonize individuals, and that gets internalized. And I think if anyone should understand that the solution to that is love and unconditional acceptance, it should be the Christians. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that he loved us, 
right? And that we have a similar response, a loving response, that maybe we can help people not internalize this horrific internal dialogue that then it gets objectified in horrific kinds of ways that we've seen in this situation. All right, so this show wouldn't be possible without sponsors. And at this point in the show is where if you want to partner with us, we would put your ad. So if you want to be a part of the show, you want to partner with us, you like what we're doing, you want to be on our team, what have you, bring this show to the world, then email us and let us know. Here's more from Matthew Stone. We, we have a term in psychology called introjection. This might be an idea or value or whatever that we just take from outside of us and we put it within ourselves. We haven't integrated that into our personality, but we can flip, right, into that or into another one. So he may have been, you know, flipping between these introjects. He's re- introjected a very harsh evaluation of the self from the version of Islam that he may have encountered. He may have introjected a very harsh evaluation from American culture about him as an Arab, right, or whatever. And those are competing with uh, his his own identif- his sexual identification. I think it's a powder keg just waiting for the spark. I think Matthew Stone really brings into this concept uh, that we don't really talk about a lot in the media, is that why would people go into a nightclub filled with people and start shooting? Um, a lot of people want to say it's because of guns. A lot of people want to say it's because of religion, right? Um, but Matthew Stone seems to say, this is psychological. This guy lost his mind in some way. Yeah, he's dealing with things that he cannot reconcile. Um, no, no matter how you look at it, there's going to be a psychological component, right? There's nothing in you that, that would be normal that wants to uh, inflict harm on another person, especially indiscriminate killing where you don't even necessarily know the people. Um, and also it's being framed as, as a hate crime because it's done specifically against a group of people, the, the LGBT community that frequents this club. So I think the issue is the, the politics is that even a word politicization or politicizing it's getting politicized yeah and so you have all of these different folks that that have this agenda latching on to one aspect right we want stricter gun control yeah it's it's guns guns are the problem or we need to deport all muslims exactly yeah and and things like that you just named both sides of the aisle well and then even even i saw some horrible twitters that were saying uh you know they were glad that um uh, LGBT were targeted. No, it's it's absolutely horrific, and we've seen even some Christian leaders come out. I won't name any names because it's just embarrassing. I don't want to publicly embarrass them, but you can find them. Some saying things like, you know, we just need to allow the radical Muslims and the homosexual community to eliminate one another. And I'm thinking, this is absolutely despicable. That Demonic. We'll speaking, I think. Yeah, we're yeah. speaking about people who are created in the image of God, who have intrinsic value. Um, who God loves, and they're they're wishing death upon them or suffering upon them, and this is where you do start to get the sense that there is a, a underlying sort of spiritual, like you said, demonic. Like, right. wow, uh, how how dece- deceitful for even people that claim to be Christian to be be saying things about the death or the destruction of someone made in the image of God. So the question uh, becomes: Okay, well. If that's the case, and this guy has um, lost his marbles and uh, and is under demonic influence and uh, um, and and 
anything like that, like, wh- what do we do? What, what, what is our response as the, as the church? Well, for one, I think you don't use it as a political talking point, right? Yeah. Using somebody's death or someone's sexual orientation or someone's religion as political talking points is quite despicable. Right, to push your agenda forward. So that, that, that alone is enough to stir you. But I think, you know, Matthew had some interesting concepts about, like, how do we respond as Christians? I think the death of all life is something to, you know, to be, to be sorry about. Um, I like uh, Theodore Heschel, who says that in a democracy, we may not all be guilty, but we are all responsible. And so I think we need to take up the responsibility to find out what is going wrong, right? That these kinds of events are occurring, and then um, certainly be praying for the people and not demonize people in the process. Because our response has to be a loving response. Either otherwise, it's not from God. I was just talking to a rabbi here recently, and on Friday they're celebrating um, something called Tikkun Olam Va Nefesh, which is a a. Um, looking at um, the uh, Jews escaping Egypt, right? And in this celebration that they're having, they will wash the feet of, of each other, and, um, but they won't wash the hands. They don't wash the hands, which Jews would normally do in, in lots of rituals, right? Because they want to say, in the face of slavery, in, in the face of anything that's causing enslavement in the society, whether it is slavery itself, physical slavery, or enslaving thoughts and emotions, whatever it is, we should not wash away our responsibility of the hands. Become responsible for helping cooperate with with God to redeem the world. I think Matthew Stone's response is a breath of fresh air. Uh, When you consider the purpose of the church is to help redeem the world. Yeah, I, personally, when I was thinking through what he was saying, I, I just immediately looked at my hands. Um, man, I'm just thinking historically, even in my own personal life, like what what responsibility have I played in the hatred or the uh, not redeeming of people, but simply condemning people? And I think that. Christians, if they're honest with themselves, we've not done things right all the time. Uh, we've made some major mistakes, and it's time to recognize how we can make uh, a difference and be known for the things that we love, not known for the things that we don't like or we don't agree with or that we hate. I think that Christ in you know, John 15 was very clear that people would know that we're his followers because of our love. And I have great concern that the church has headed in such a direction where we're no longer defined by the things that we love, like Christ and grace and mercy and redemption, but we're known by the things that we don't agree with or the things that we hate. And I think when he said that, I just thought, wow, immediately how what, what blood is on my hands, you know? Yeah, I thought that... Uh... When Matthew Stone said that, I was struggling with the idea of accepting responsibility. Um, But I think that with every single believer to say that there is no responsibility, that we aren't responsible, uh, I think is 
shortchanging ourselves or is is deceiving ourselves uh, and really prevents us from moving forward, um, not just as a church community, but uh, as a nation, um, as the world. Uh, because I think uh, as far as every Christian is concerned, uh, part of bringing about justice and redemption uh, and God's righteousness and his kingdom on earth uh, is what we're here for. And uh, one of the ways that we can do that is, uh, of course, praying, um, but it's also uh, dispelling these ideas um, that we might harbor in the back of our head of, um, of hatred, of um, bigotry, of fear, and letting that consume us and right our, um, our behavior. Um, but instead, you know, look to Christ and look to what he's calling us to be and calling us to do and who we are and how we got here and where we started from uh, and how he's redeemed us and is continuing to deliver us uh, and to repent when we need to repent. Ask forgiveness when we need to ask forgiveness, uh, but ultimately move forward in uh, who God has called us to be as a church. So I think it's appropriate to close by... um, just suggesting that, you know, hatred and bigotry, um, these aren't necessarily Muslim problems. These are, these are human problems. Um, there's never been a point in time in history where any religion at any point in time has not somehow, you know, hated or, uh, persecuted against a certain group of people. And I mean, I'm thankful that we're at a point in time in history where when you see blood on your hands, you don't want it there and you want to wash it off, and you want redemption, you want love, you want wholeness for, for people around you. You want them to know uh, peace and love. Uh, ultimately, for us, Howard, we've found that in Christ, and we want people to know that the way that we've found it. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, we just want people to know that uh, this whole, the shooting, this tragedy, uh, it's stirring the world. It's stirring the world to help us to realize that there is something incredibly broken and uh, we want people to feel a sense of safety, a sense of wholeness. And so for those that are uh, part of the LGBT community that have probably suffered fear um, and are, are hurting, you know, we pray for them, pray for their their peace, pray for the Lord to meet them in a, in a special way. For those that have uh, maybe lost a loved one, we are praying for you as well. And for the Muslim community that feels... Uh, probably very ashamed of something that was done in the name of Islam as far as the media has represented it. We pray for them as well. So I think it's just a moment in time where we stop and we recognize that the human heart is desperately wicked and needs healing, needs redemption, and we need to make sure that when people know us, they know us for the things that we love, the things that we speak, the things that we promote, which is peace, love, and uh, we want people to know that they can find that.